Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. We're recording this on the 12th of February, so we're recording this a bit ahead of schedule. And Jeff has some extreme weather where he lives. Tell us about this this thing called snow, Jeff. Well, there's this thing called snow that a lot of people are familiar with. But here in Seattle, let me tell you, uh, we do get snow maybe once a year. And it's usually like a little bit of a dusting. Um, this time, we've been hit by like four consecutive storms. And at one point yesterday, I think there was a foot and a half of snow on the ground, um, even more in some of the outlying places. Um, it's been really cool in the sense that, you know, it's different. It's beautiful. Um, it has reminded me photographically that, uh, when you take pictures, your camera will want to make things very blue. So you need to warm up the white balance and you need to, uh, uh, boost the exposure. So that was kind of an interesting reminder. Not only blue, but it tries to make the snow gray instead of white. So you generally need to up your exposure compensation. Yes, yes. So I have a whole bunch of, of iPhone photos that are just, you know, blue, blue, blue um, that need a little bit of tweaking. Um, but also, you know, it's 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 fun. It's different. Um, there's that thing when it snows so much and everything gets quiet, which is different when you live in a city. Yeah. So that, that was kind of yep. cool. Um, however, it's made our schedules chaotic because there hasn't been any school and uh, we haven't been able to drive anywhere. Uh, just because of the hills in Seattle, it's it's like everything shuts down, rightly so. The reason I mentioned it is because you've taken some stunning photos, and I hope you're going to put some in the show notes. Ah, thank you. You have one photo where you've got this um, snow-covered landscape and a pine tree, and then through a crack you see the red bit of a house, which, while I disagree with your framing, I think it should be in <laughs> portrait, um, as I mentioned on Facebook. Um, that's a stunning photo. There's also the one of the dinosaur covered in ice, which is really typical, you know, ice age photo. Oh, yeah. Um, and you've been using your drone and you've been getting some interesting drone shots of the snow. Yes, yes. I'll definitely put those in the in the show notes. I uh, I didn't want to, you know, just go out and like take the same normal pictures of my yard. Uh, and so because the wind hadn't gotten really, really bad yet, uh, I decided to send the drone up. And that's that's basically just, you know, right up over my my own property. Um, you know, you can go listen to our drone episode to hear more about flying drones. Um, but link in the show notes, link in the show notes. Um, but you know, because, uh, this is such a different look for the whole neighborhood, the whole, uh, expanse, it was, it was fun to, to get up and see things from up high, um, and, and actually do it, you know, while it was snowing. So the, one of the clips I made, you know, it's, it's, it's very gray as you get higher up because there's just so much snow up there, but the, the drone did well, then I'm happy about that. <laughs> So quick tip, you talked about white balance and iPhone photos. If you want to adjust the white balance, you take your photos. If they're iPhone photos, you put them in the Photos app. Um, you open a photo in edit mode. To do that, you press Command Return, and you go to the Adjust tab. And if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see the white balance section. If you click on the eyedropper, then click on something white or neutral gray, that will set the white balance correctly. Another thing that I found, because I shot a, a few little videos with my phone too, um, I opened them in iMovie, and iMovie on the iPhone doesn't have 
uh, very much in terms of color correction, but it does have some presets. And there's one preset uh, f at the far right, which I think is like like old photos or something, uh, which normally gives you a you know a, a sort of old scratchy look. But with the with the blue snow video, it just sort of popped the white balance exactly where it needed to be. So it was quick. It was easy. Uh, easy to share. So until now, each episode of this podcast has been about a single topic. But today we want to cover two topics. Sometimes a topic isn't enough for a 30-minute episode, so we figured we would cut this into two parts. The first part of the show is going to be about backups, and the second part, get ready for this, it's going to be about 360-degree cameras. Jeff has one, I don't, but we'll find out more later. So, backups. Let's start with rule number one, backup your data. Rule number two, back up your data. Rule number three, back up your backup. <laughs> Rule number four, know the law of hard drives. Mm. It's not a question of whether a hard drive will fail, but when it will fail. How many hard drives have failed on you over the years? Can you even guess? Very few. Very few? Well, that's good. Very, very that's few. That's good. In fact, I generally replace my drives after about three or four years. Ah, okay. So I don't even trust them long enough more than that. You know, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Backblaze, every year they do a uh, survey showing the failure rate of different hard drive brands and sizes, et cetera. And what they show is, I think the first couple of years, it's like 1% or 2% a year. But once you get past three years, it's 10 or 12% failure rate. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, these are drives that are spinning all the time and, you know, heavy-duty work on Backblaze. I think it's fair to assume that if you care about protecting your data, you should consider that a hard drive is not a permanent device. Also, every three or four years, you're getting four times as much storage for half the price. So I remember the last time, uh, about three years ago, I had four terabyte drives, and then I upgraded them last year to eight terabyte drives. So I'll keep these another two or three years, maybe move some of them back into rotation as like backups of my backups and keep the newer ones and get newer ones and put them as backups. But I just don't trust them long enough. That's a really good stance to take. I, I tend to hold on to mine a little bit longer. Um, I haven't had very many spectacular failures, but I have definitely had drives that have died. And because of what we're going to talk about, uh, I haven't lost any data. The last time, however, there was a time that put me on this path where my internal drive on my MacBook Pro way back when uh, just spectacularly died. Um, you know, like to the point where, um, as, as a tech told me later, like the actuator arm that seeks across the platters to find the data was basically chopping into the platters like an ax. And so, you know, that, that's the type of thing where, you know, it, it, it was sudden, it was unexpected. Uh, and the only option I had was to refer to backups. It was painful. <laughs> it was scary. <laughs> Well, it's not painful and scary if you plan ahead. It was because so, I hadn't. <laughs> right, exactly. But you learn. I lost data once. Um, this goes back to, I believe, 1994. In a previous life, I taught English as a foreign language in France. And I was doing some translation. And I got to the point where I wanted to do some continuing education. So I applied for a master's degree program in uh, applied linguistics with a UK university. And since I didn't have a bachelor's degree, yes, I'm a college dropout, they asked me to write an essay. They saw my life experience, um, having been a teacher for years, and they asked me to write an essay, and I spent all day writing it. 
and I was using Claris Works. I remember this very well. Um, I selected all, and then I accidentally deleted, and then it auto-saved, but there was no undo, and I lost a day's work, which is fine because I was able to rewrite it. I knew the ideas, but, you know, imagine something you can't replace, like your photos. Like, you've got those photos of your kids' first steps that you can never, ever replace. That's the big thing. I think, you know, there have been lots of different solutions for restoring data like that, like like Word files. And, you know, like, at the end of the day, unless it's something really, really important, um, you know, Word files are just like, whatever, toss those away. But it's the photos, the photos that you cannot get back, like those moments that you cannot get back that, you know, I, I've seen in a lot of people like that's what gets them to do backups because they realize, oh, you know, you are 20 seconds from losing all of your, your photo memories. So let's start with like the very basics. Kirk, I need a backup. What do I do? Where do I start? You buy an external hard drive, you connect it to your Mac, you go to System Preferences, Time Machine, and you turn on Time Machine. Now, Time Machine is a truly amazing feature of the Mac. What it does is it makes incremental backups. The first time, it backs up everything on your disk. The second time, it backs up only what's changed. By default, it does this every hour, and then after a day, it deletes everything. It, in other words, it keeps the 24 last backups for an hour and then the 30 last backups per day and then weekly. So you can have years and years of backups. This is painless. It doesn't require any configuration. All it requires is an external hard drive. Today, you can buy a four terabyte self-powered portable pocket-sized hard drive for like 80 bucks. No brainer. That's actually the next thing I was going to jump into because I know a lot of people's first thoughts are, whoa, 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 I have to go buy more hard drives and, you know, like I don't have, you know, thousands of dollars sitting around to, to do this. However, a lot of these hard drives are really, really uh, inexpensive now. And the fact that they're self-powered means you can just gaffer tape them to the back of your <laughs> iMac or stick them in a drawer and, and back up, you know, once a day or once a week or something like that. They don't take up a lot of space. They don't make much noise because they don't have fans. Um, you don't need to plug in to a power supply. So it's only just that one USB cable. Yeah, and especially with something like, like, like a time machine backup, you know, you mostly just have to make sure that it is plugged in. So, f for example, you know, I, I have a MacBook Pro and I have um, a USB-C Thunderbolt 3 dock. And so it's just always plugged into the dock. So whenever the laptop is plugged into the dock, the time machine backup happens automatically. And that's really the key for your first level of, of, of backup is, is you want something that will do it automatically. So it's not on you to make those backups because, you know, you are human and you can forget. What's next? Here's something good to know about your MacBook Pro situation. I know you take your MacBook Pro out with you when you go to get coffee and to yes. work. Let's say you've uploaded some photos to your MacBook Pro at 10 a.m. And you've been out during the afternoon, and then you come home, and the photos aren't there. Well, what Time Machine does is in the backup, it makes a snapshot every hour, preparing to copy those to your external drive when you plug it in. So you may accidentally delete the photos three hours later, but you'll still have the backup of the first time it backed up after you added the photos. That's a pretty nifty little feature. That's a very good point. I'd almost forgotten about that. The second step, and it actually might be easier for some people, if you have very good internet bandwidth, get yourself an online backup service. I mentioned Backplays earlier. 
Um, there are others, Crash Plan, and there were a few others. I used Backblaze a few years ago. When I had faster internet, and then I moved to this house where my upload is only one megabit, of course, that's going to change because I will soon be getting fiber to the property. But <laughs> soon. When, you, when you set that up, your Mac will automatically back up its data to Backblaze's server, which have redundant backups, and which I really wouldn't worry about them losing everything unless, I don't know, if the world ends, and in that case, you don't need your photos anyway. Right. But then you don't need to think about anything. You don't need to plug a drive in. So another thing to point out is one backup isn't enough. You need to back up your backup, or you need to have a redundant backup. And using an online service is great for many reasons. It's a second backup, a redundant backup, but it's also not on site. So when that tornado rips through your house and destroys your backup hard drive, all your data is still in the cloud. Now, there's one thing that's not a backup, and that's iCloud photo libraries or Adobe's cloud and all that, because they're meant to synchronize your photos, but they're not meant to be inviolable, and you might actually lose some data with them. And also, those are services that are not under your direct control. So if something were to happen to Apple's data centers, now, you know, obviously that's not very likely, but... Part of having a good backup system is you have redundancy and you also have control over it. It's worth noting that all those cloud systems use what's called object storage, which has a system called erasure coding, which kind of works like a RAID system. So a certain number of drives can fail and it can still rebuild the data. It's pretty nifty how this works. So I don't really worry too much about them, but it's not meant to be your real backup. Right, exactly. Speaking of real backups, however, uh, one thing that I advise, and I've learned this the hard way, is um, in addition to having a time machine backup, you want to have at least one bootable backup, a, a duplicate of your hard drive. and Or a clone. Or a clone, yeah. Um, the, there are two apps that are great for this, uh, Carbon Copy Cloner and SuperDuper. Uh, I've used both. And the idea is, and this will require that you go out and buy another hard drive, but this is a hard drive that can be about the same size as your your internal hard drive. Um, and you make a complete clone of it. Now, this isn't like Time Machine where it's keeping older versions as you go back in time. Uh, this is just like a complete clone of what your hard drive was at the time that you made the clone. But the key to this is, if your hard drive fails, you have all your data, but you also have the ability to start up your computer from that disk. And I've found that to be really helpful at some times. Like, for example, um, I had a botched uh, macOS Mojave upgrade, and my duplicate wasn't updated, um, and so I had to resort to a time machine backup, and, like, it was a big mess. If I had just made and updated my duplicate right before I had applied the update, uh, I would have been back in business in like a couple of hours. And instead, it took me like, you know, more than a day. Kirk, Kirk is laughing at me. <laughs> because every time I do a major update to my Mac, I do that. I have uh, an SSD in an enclosure that connects via USB 3. It's the same size as the SSD in my iMac. I have another one for my MacBook Pro. I do the clone, I do the update, and then I have that just in case. Time Machine actually is bootable. Uh, if you boot your Mac and press the R key into the recovery partition, you can boot from your Time Machine backup. If, assuming you've let it back up all your files, you haven't excluded the system files. It doesn't work the same as a clone. It's very time-consuming the way it has to read all the files, but it can work like that. So when you clone 
your Mac's internal drive, that's only going to copy what's on the internal drive. Now, these days, new Macs have SSDs in them, and you probably didn't pay for that one terabyte SSD upgrade. And you may have an external drive for additional files. I have a, an eight terabyte drive for my media collection, for instance, my music and my films and all that. So you need to remember to back that up. Now, that can be backed up into Time Machine. Time Machine will back up all the disks on your Mac as long as you don't exclude them. But if you're not doing that backup, you need to back up that extra drive. So I do that as well. I have backups and backups of backups of my media drive. I'm actually less concerned about my Mac itself because I've got a double time machine backup. We'll put a link in the show notes explaining how you can have two drives used alternately in time machine. I've got an article on my blog. As, as you can tell, I'm a backup obsessive. I really am. This is good. I mean, being a backup obsessive is is great because if you run into a situation where and and this does happen, you know, the backup that you had expected to be working, maybe that drive failed silently that you didn't realize. Um so, you know, having multiple options is good. Also, this brings up the good point. If you have a duplicate, uh make a duplicate of that duplicate and store it somewhere off-site. So, having something like Backblaze, that's a good off-site backup. But you have to re-download information that can be very timely. Uh, get a trusted friend or a safe deposit box. Have a drive over at their house. So again, you know, if something happens, if you have a power spike that just fries all your electronics, you still have that data somewhere else that's not in your physical location. Okay, that's enough for backups. We'll have a link in the show notes to uh, take control of backing up your Mac, an ebook by our friend Joe Kissel. Jeff and I have both written take control books for many years. If you have any questions about backups, drop us a line on our show page or in the Facebook group. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about 360-degree cameras, and I'm getting dizzy already just thinking of that. <laughs> Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still-life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joel Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for photoactive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. So this 360-degree camera thing, I find this interesting. I've never really paid attention to it. I did notice some time ago that you had posted some photos on Facebook, and we'll have links in the show notes. So when you look at the photo on Facebook, you have to click and drag on the photo. And so you're standing there. It looks like you're holding something in between your finger and your thumb, but there's nothing there. It's like the camera <laughs> somehow hides itself. And I can go up and down, and I can turn in all directions. Um, although if you go all the way up, it doesn't come back. So you can really only go 180 degrees at a time. But you can go around sideways 360 degrees. Now, my first thought is, it kind of makes me dizzy. <laughs> my second thought is this is like Google Street View in some way. 
Um, but I think the whole 360-degree selfie is interesting. Tell us how these work. Part of the reason this topic came up, the Wirecutter released an updated version of a guide that I originally wrote uh, about 360-degree cameras. It's a really interesting field, um, partially because it's kind of a gimmick, uh, you know, because you're, you have cameras with dual lenses that are literally, or actually sometimes more than two lenses, uh, that are capturing the entire scene around the camera. And uh, that can be really good, especially for video, for example, where um, you can, you know, find interesting 360 videos where, you know, they've put a camera inside a, a fighter jet or somebody snowboarding. And, you know, you can look around and, you know, get a sense of more a sense of being there. Um, and so when I wrote this guide, I had a few different cameras to play with. Um, it, the one that Kirk just described was uh, from a, a Ricoh Theta or Theta. Um, and that ended up being like the top pick. And it was actually small. It was it was like a little stick, really not much taller than uh, an iPhone. And it allowed you to, you know, sort of like hoist it up and point it anywhere. Because it captures in 360 degrees, if you're holding it, like you're taking a selfie whether you like it or not. Um, one neat thing about viewing these in Facebook, if you're looking at it on a mobile device, it ties it to the accelerometer. So you can actually like turn your body around and, and get a, a sense of, of, of what the scene looks like. I guess what's interesting to me about this whole category is that it's still there because it's a gimmick. You know, not everybody really needs to see 360-degree views of everything. Um, it takes some work to make this happen. Um, you know, fortunately, all the current cameras, they will take the pictures and do all the stitching and, and all that. So you just end up with, with the end result. But not everything knows how to display that in 360 degrees. So, you know, Facebook has some code that they can identify how to make that work and how to present it as a 360-degree image. But if you were just going to put this on your website, uh, that there are tools that uh, inject metadata to properly describe it as a 360. Like, the level of complication sort of ramps up. And I guess what's most interesting is... The fact that that this is still a category and companies are still innovating and and making better cameras to me is sort of fascinating. Um, I I think I still have one uh, left over from when I was reviewing it. Uh, I I didn't get around to sending it back and nobody asked for it and it. It's just in the pile of review stuff that I don't ever touch. That <laughs> the hardware the, box, the hardware box, yeah, yeah, the the big drawer. So what I want to understand is is how you actually shoot this photo. I'm looking oh. on the wire cutter at a picture of this Ricoh Theta, and it's kind of like a large stick, like a USB stick, but bigger. Yeah, with a lens on one side. Do you have to turn around? In order to get this photo, no, no. How it, did you get the photo to to take a picture of you and everything else around? It actually has lenses on two sides, so so they the lenses face opposite each other. They're extremely wide angle lenses, and so it takes two pictures, and 
it knows where the areas overlap and then stitches that together as as one basically one very very long flat panorama that it can then uh put into like a a, a 3d sphere basically okay it it totally doesn't look like that because I would assume that a very wide angle, you would get a lot of distortion. And again, looking at this Facebook photo, uh, the selfie of you in the rain in what looks like a university campus or something, mm -hmm. there's very little actual distortion. Is it the software afterwards that corrects the distortion of the lens? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So if you were to take a look at that picture, and I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes. Um, if you were to look at that image in, say, preview or, or photos... Um, it's very distorted because it's 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 just a big long panorama uh, stretched out, and it's it's the software that Facebook has put there to translate that information in order to to give it that that three D spherical appearance that you can look around in. It, it's really impressive. Um, now, I, I don't see this as the kind of well, at least today, I don't see this as the kind of photo one would make in order to make a photo, you know, composed to, to make a statement, an art photo or whatever. However, I can certainly imagine that people come up with ways to make 3D photos artistically. But I can think of one obvious use case, real estate photography, where mm -hmm. you want to show the insides of houses. You go in and you do this in each room. You take a couple photos. You let the software do the thing. You put it on a website, and it's much better than those, you know, ultra wide angle photos you see you know still photos of rooms in houses absolutely absolutely this is definitely a field that has its its niches um i also point out that uh jeffrey morrison who has written the current version of the guide um he said to me over twitter this is the first year that he can fully recommend 360 degree cameras without serious reservations because um you know re resolution for example is a big deal because you know even if you have a you know quote unquote high resolution like like, like even a, a 4k resolution camera when you are applying that to an entire 360 degree field the the effective resolution is is much smaller and and you'll you'll notice you know more of of the pixels and so the resolution has come up on a lot of them um and a lot of these have to be sort of rugged because they're geared toward sports. Uh, you know, you have people who will mount them onto like a helmet or onto a, a you know, something that will let them, you know, go ski down a mountain and, you know, get that whole. But do they sorry. shoot video as well as still photos? Yeah. Yeah. They, they all shoot video too. So 360 video? Yeah, 360 video. It's it's very cool to experience. You'll find something you can link to in the show notes if possible, because I'd really like to see that. Uh, it's it's worth noting that these aren't cheap, but wire cutters two picks are four hundred and three hundred fifty dollars, and then their upgrade pick is eight hundred. It's the price of a lens when you think about it, and this could be something that might be fun to use in certain ways. I do notice that some of the photos aren't three sixty, but they're like ultra wide angles, they're, they're what they're calling a tiny planet photo when you shoot something and it looks like you're shooting from real far away above the earth. That, that as a photo, as a still photo, is actually interesting. Of course, you don't want to do too many of those because it'll get boring, but it is an interesting idea. Actually, I think you've hit on exactly the rationale for these cameras, which is it's interesting and you can do creative things with them. 
because, you know, yes, you can go and, and shoot a scene with your camera, your regular camera, uh, but, you know, it really sort of makes you realize just how bounded the image is, how much you're not seeing. And so, you know, even if you were to go out and, you know, shoot some sort of event, uh, if you had sufficient resolution, you could sort of crop wherever you wanted, and, and that could be your composition. I don't think we're quite at that point where we're going to say, you know, I'm just going to take a 360 shot of anything and then decide the composition later. Um, that also just sort of feels wrong to me as a photographer, but, you know, in the future, that could totally be possible. Um, so being able to to do sort of kooky things like 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 this tiny planet photo, um, you know, it's it's fun, it's different, um, and you know, have it be like like the the supplement to the other shooting that you're doing. I, I must admit that I'm intrigued by this, and I'm very tempted because sometimes I go to places where there were like ruins of old churches and castles, and that's the kind of thing that would really be interesting with that ultra wide angle shot or with the actual 360. Um, I'm going to put one of these in my Amazon shopping cart and think about maybe buying one. You should, you absolutely should. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what I'd really do with it, but as something to explore a new way of looking at things, I find it fascinating. Yes. Yes. So what I eventually came up with was, you know, like it's, it's very cool and it's fun and it's impressive technology and I liked doing it, but for me, me personally, uh, I ran into the problem of, oh, this is another camera that I need to remember to grab and shoot with rather than here I am, you know, focusing on just using my Fuji or just using, you know, something else. You have to think about also like, you know, where you are in the frame. Do you want to be in the frame? One interesting thing when we were talking about flying my drone around the snow, a friend of mine who has one of these cameras, he's like, could we attach this to one of the drones and fly yes. that up? Like, that could be pretty cool. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe I'll have something like that to share. Okay. So, what about this week's snapshots? Jeff, what do you have? So, for me this week, uh, this won't come as a surprise given the uh, weather around here. Um, I picked up this Peak Design Shell. Uh, it's a protective rain or dust camera cover. You can go and buy little rain covers for your camera. They're usually, you know, plastic. Maybe they have like a little uh, zip tie that, that sort of closes it off, and you, you put that around your camera to, to keep it dry in the rain. Um, and they're always a little bit fiddly, and they tear and what have you. Um, and so this is this is a cover that's you know made for a DSLR. It's made of neoprene um, because it's peak design. They have little cutouts for their system of uh, clips and fasteners that they use to connect a lot of their other uh, accessories like straps. Um, it's it's really well made. And um, for the most part, it's a very good addition. You have to pull the back up to get to the controls. And so it's not as versatile as I would like. But if you're in a situation where you know, you're in a really wet area, maybe it's raining really hard, you're at the base of a waterfall, or it's really snowing a lot, uh, it's, it's a good way to protect your camera, especially if you have a camera that's not water sealed. Kirk, do you have something this week? So my snapshot is related to backups. 
Uh, we mentioned earlier that you can buy external drives. You can buy these drives that are come in the enclosures. They're self-powered with cables. But you can also buy naked drives with no cables. It's just the, the hard drive with the pins at the end. And you can put them into something that's called a disk dock. A disk dock is it's like a toaster. You stick the drive in one of the slots. Most of them have two slots. Some of them will work both with three and a half and two and a half inch drives. Two and a half inch is the size you get in the laptops. You can have a stack of hard drives of varying sizes, of varying ages that you use to back up different things. Now, let's say you've got a huge photo library and you need multiple hard drives to back it up. Take a Sharpie, write one on the first drive, two on the second, and set up your backup software to make backup one, then backup two. You stick the drive in the dock, you back it up, you eject it in the Finder or the Windows Explorer if you're on Windows, you pull it out, you put the next one in. It's really easy to do, and you don't have all these wires that you do when you have a dozen hard drives. Um, they save space. They're not expensive on Amazon. We'll link to something that's $30, $40. They're, they're relatively reliable. You can get them in USB 3, so it's relatively fast. Uh, I think that if you do need to do a lot of backups, it's a lot more practical to do it this way than buying external drives, enclosures, cables, and particularly drives larger drives, three-and-a-half-inch drives that you have to plug in because they're pretty rarely self-powered. So it's a drive dock or a drive docking station or a drive toaster. I like that better. <laughs> I've been using drive docks for a long time. One of the reasons that I really like them is that I don't need to worry about having multiple power bricks and all the cabling that, that goes with it. And as I mentioned earlier, when I make a duplicate, I make a backup of that duplicate and I take it to a safe deposit box at a bank near me. And it's so much easier to just take a bare three and a half inch hard drive and put that into the box than having, you know, anything that's that, that would normally, you know, take up a lot more room on my desk. So um and it saves space for you to put your loot in the safe deposit box. Exactly, exactly. Because there's so much loot I can barely handle it. <laughs> Uh, but you know, but bare drives tend to tend to be less expensive as well because you don't have to buy all the circuitry that has all the interfaces. Uh, so, I've been using them for a long time, and they work really, really well. Okay, that's enough for today. We did two topics. That's pretty interesting. Ooh. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week... Thanks again for listening.